Let's pray together. Father, as you uh, speak to us in your word, I pray that um, we would come to it not like any other book, not merely ink on a page, but what it actually is, your living and active word. God, thank you that your word is authoritative. Thank you that your word is clear. Thank you that your word can cut through the nonsense and confusion and chaos of this world and our own hearts and minds, and it can revive us can refine us, points to how we can be redeemed. Pray that your word is loud and comforting to us today. Above everything, what we ask is that not a single person would leave this place less impressed with Jesus than when they came in. We ask that Christ would be, would be magnified throughout this sermon in our songs, our conversations, in communion, and as we leave, that he would become increasingly more brilliant and dazzling in our sight throughout this week until we get to gather again. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I was um, in Richmond, Virginia this, this last week at uh, Grimke Seminary. It's a new seminary that got launched by a number of churches that are part of our church planning network, and so I was back there talking about some training opportunities and initiatives, and it was Thursday around lunchtime, and I was sitting around a table with um, four or five other, other buddies, and, and like many people on Thursday, we were scrolling through news feeds as we had a little break. We're scrolling through news feeds just trying to check, like, what's happening in Ukraine, what's going on with this military activity, and um, it's pretty overwhelming. And one of the guys that I was sitting next to, he has three kids from Ukraine, and he's been there every year for 15 years to go over and train pastors and church planters, and he's, he's just, he's concerned, and he's worried about all these people that, that he knows that are there. And then the conversation spun in and out of a number of different aspects, like what's, what, you know, what, what's going to happen economically, what's, you know, what's going to happen to gas prices, what, what, what's, what's going to happen in this, you know, is, is, is Russia does this and, and has a, a first world military with nuclear abilities, and people are just confused, and they're worried, and they're, they're scared, and, and they're nervous, and you think about the displacement of, of, of hundreds of thousands, if not millions of people, eventually you think about the preciousness of human life, you think about our inability and vulnerabilities, and you just like, what's, what is, what, what's the U.S.'s response going to be? How are we going to be brought into this? And all these different things. And at one point in the conversation, one of the guys, he just kind of leans back in his chair, and he just sighs. And he goes, thank God for sovereignty. Love Packer, G.I. Packer says it like this. He says, to know that nothing happens in God's world apart from God's will, it may frighten the godless, but it stabilizes the saints. To live well in this world, you need big God theology. We've been going through the book of Daniel as this field guide for how do we navigate this beautiful, broken, confusing, chaotic, wonderful amalgam <laughs> combo of a world. You need big God theology to do it well. Puny gods will not help you when stuff like this happens. And today what we're going to do is we're going to survey two chapters of the Bible, Daniel chapter 4 and Daniel chapter 5. It's a ton of ground to cover, and so we're going to be pretty selective as we try to get this, this overarching theme through these two chapters, and it's this. It's God is sovereign. 
We're going to see a sovereignty over two different kings who were leaders of, at that time, the greatest global superpower that existed. We're going to see his absolute, unrivaled rule. Big takeaway from this text or big takeaway from this sermon is this. God is not small. And that's a good thing. If you're able to stand for the reading of God's Word, would you stand with me? I'm going to read from Daniel chapter 4. We're on pages 740, 741, 742, because we're doing two giant chapters. Um, We'll start, though, Daniel chapter 4, verse 28, and read down to verse 37. This is God's holy, strong word for us. All this came upon King Nebuchadnezzar. At the end of 12 months, he was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon, and the king answered and said, Is not this great Babylon, which I have built by my mighty power as a royal residence and for the glory of my majesty? While the words were still in the king's mouth, there fell a voice from heaven. O King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is spoken. The kingdom has departed from you, and you shall be driven from among men, and your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field, and you shall be made to eat grass like an ox. And seven periods of time shall pass over you until you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. Immediately, the word was fulfilled against Nebuchadnezzar. He was driven from among men and ate grass like an ox, and his body was wet with the dew of heaven till his hair grew as long as eagle's feathers, and his nails were like bird's claws. At the end of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, I lifted my eyes to heaven, and my reason returned to me, and I blessed the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever. For his dominion, it's an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, and he does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth, and none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? At the same time, my reason returned to me, and for the glory of my kingdom, my majesty and splendor returned to me. My counselors and my lords, they sought me, and I was established in my kingdom, and still more greatness was added to me. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, Praise and extol and honor the King of heaven, for all his works are right and his ways are just, and those who walk in pride he is able to humble. Feel free to grab a seat. Let's do, um, we'll do a definition of sovereignty, talk a little bit about how we might resist it, and then why we, why we really want to welcome it. Um, I'll give you a definition of sovereignty. God's good, rightful unrivaled lordship, control, and authority over all creation. You see that actually in Daniel chapter 4. You see those sorts of, those words or themes coming out in, if you look at the entirety of Daniel chapter 4, it actually begins, the first few verses are are a, a hymn or a praise to God, and then it ends with this hymn or a praise to God. It, back in Daniel chapter 4, verse Two, it has seemed good to me to show signs and wonders. This is Nebuchadnezzar speaking. Signs and wonders the most high God has done for me. How great are his signs. How mighty his wonders. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom. And his dominion endures from generation to generation. We already read the words, but I'm going to read them again. 
I blessed the Most High and praised and honored Him who lives forever. Verse 34, for His dominion, it's an everlasting dominion. His kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, and He does according to His will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth, and none can stay His hand or say to Him, what have you done? We could pull out so many aspects of these words. I'll give you a few of them if we're going to try to summarize. It's saying that God's power is absolute. God's authority is unrivaled, and thankfully, God is good. It's where 37 ends. It says, everything he did was right. He fixed me. That's what Nebuchadnezzar is saying, in all of his strength. God is not small. David Murray came across this this last week. I think it might have been a blog post, might have been a book. I can't remember, but he was pulling from Isaiah chapter 40, verse 12, and just kind of giving some color to this verse that talks about the greatness and the grandeur and the strength of God. Isaiah 40, 12 says, Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hands? It's like all the water that exists. It would just hold them. Found this estimate, 332,519,000 cubic miles of water on this planet. Yet our sovereign God holds them all, just like this. Isaiah 40, 12 again says this, Who has marked off the heavens with a span? From cosmos to cosmos, from star to star, from the ends of the known universe to the other end of the known universe. Marks it off with a span. A span in Hebrew was the, the length between the tip of your thumb and your pinky, as far as you can stretch your hand. And the average uh, male hand is something like, I don't know, it was like seven and a half or eight inches or something like that. And so I was like, well, I'll try to go, f-, like, we'll find a bigger hand. So Russell Wilson, quarterback Seahawks, at least for now, um, his, he's got some of the biggest hands in the NFL, like second, third biggest hand, something like that. The span of his hand is something like 10 and a half inches. Contrast us with God. God can measure the heavens with just his hand. The nearest star is four light years away. So you'd have to travel for four years at 186,000 miles per hour to reach it. But God can measure, measure the universe like that. God is not small. I'm not going to spend long on this next point, but when we think about God's absolute, unrivaled control and authority, some of us might, may get a little twitchy, a little bit nervous. We, we may kind of buck against that. And, and for, for some of us, rightfully so, because we've seen how that sort of authority and power has been misused. We see it in families with domineering dads and business with bosses that exploit, in churches from authoritarian pastors and leaders, in Ukraine. And one of the questions we have is like, is, is the solution to that misuse of authority no authority? Mike Cosper gives this insight. He says, in response to abuse of authority, some go to the other extreme and choose to abandon authority. Fathers and husbands become passive and families suffer without godly leadership. In such circumstances, other rulers naturally arise, filling the vacuum left by leaders who fail to lead. Likewise, family authority is inverted whenever parents fail to discipline their children 
and let their kids rule the house with tantrums. And he goes on, he says, it's like the CEO who won't lead or make difficult decisions for the life of an organization. Or it's like a military commander who at the, at the, at the fulcrum point of the battle is unwilling to, to make the call. Or it's like an like NFL quarterback who goes into the huddle, three seconds left in the game, and looks around at his teammates and says, I don't know what to do. What do you guys think? See, the solution to, to poor authority isn't less authority. It's good authority. It's right authority. The solution to the corrupt use of power is not to lay down power. It's the right use of that power. So we see throughout this text, Jonathan Lehman gives this and says, good authority strengthens and grows. It authors and creates. It's the teacher teaching, the coach coaching, the mother mothering. It's the rules for a game, the lines on a road, a covenant for lovers, the lessons for a child, the chance to grow and expand and eventually take dominion ourselves. One of history's greatest secrets, and here's why I'm doing this whole thing. Listen to this line. So we look at a text like this of God's sovereign power. One of the history's his greatest secrets is this, is that God means his authority to grow and expand us, not to shrink and snuff us out. And that's Daniel 4. God is using his good, rightful control and authority to actually rehumanize Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar in his arrogance and his pride, he's looking at his kingdom and saying, oh, look what I've done. Look how majestic. Look how great I am. And God brings judgment, but not to crush him to get him to finally come to his senses when he begins to look that there is a God and Nebuchadnezzar is not it. Wednesday morning as I was flying to, to Richmond, Virginia, about an hour into the flight, and a uh, flight attendant gets on to the PA system and says, are there any medical professionals on the plane? We need your assistance. So I pull out my, my, um, my AirPod and I just look and right next to me is an elderly woman who is really struggling. You see, she's so scared. And her husband who's next to her is terrified. And what was striking to me in this moment of, of panic in 17D is most of the people on the plane were just clueless. They're still watching movies, they're reading books, they're zoned out listening to music, or they're snoring. And right here is chaos and fear. And what you want in that moment, what you need in that moment is to know that somebody sees and somebody cares and somebody can do something about it. And by God's grace, there was someone on the plane who was able to, to jump in and help. This woman was okay. It's what we need. When things go sideways, just unexpectedly, what, what we need is a big God who sees and who cares and can do something about it. Charles Spurgeon, great line, he says this, when you go through a trial, the sovereignty of God is the pillow upon which you lay your head. God is not small. And what we're going to do in this text, we're going to see it work out in two specific ways. We're going to see in Daniel chapter 4, God is sovereign to save. And then we're going to see in Daniel chapter 5, God is sovereign to stop. God is sovereign to save and God is sovereign to stop. Um, 
sovereign to save. Daniel 4, it's Nebuchadnezzar's conversion story. I don't know if you've ever noticed this, but if you go read the whole chapter, it's actually Nebuchadnezzar sharing, like, this is how God got a hold of me. This is how he woke me up. And we see it at the very beginning. There's this, like, prescript that happens in chapter 4 at the very beginning that sets the table for the whole chapter. King Nebuchadnezzar, to all peoples, nations, and languages that dwell in all the earth, peace be multiplied to you. It has seemed good to me to show the signs and wonders that the Most High God has done for me. And I love that little line. He says, he did this for me, not to me. And and the chapter goes on, and what happens is it retells this time when Nebuchadnezzar got this very frightening dream, very confusing dream. He didn't know know what it was about. So what he does is he summons all of his his people, his his delegation, the the people, the wise men of his community. He says, okay, tell me what this dream means. And eventually, Daniel comes in, and he he tells the king this dream. And what he's telling him is he says, King, God sent you this dream. He says, judgment is coming, but it doesn't have to be that way. He says, repent, turn to God, humble yourself below his mighty hand, or he is going to humble you. And that's what we see in this text, that the the king then goes on, he ignores it. He's given 12 months, and after 12 months of being warned, finally, as he's boasting about all of his grandeur, there's a voice from heaven that says, no, and he gets the mind of an animal, and he leaves the palace, and he's out in the, the wilderness. His hair grows, and his nails grow until they're long like a bird. But God, in his kindness, humbles him. And it's finally in that place that Nebuchadnezzar, he comes to his senses. Let me read again to you, Daniel 4.37. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the king of heaven, for all his works are right and his ways are just, and those who walk in pride he is able to humble. He's talking about himself, saying, God got me. God finally got me to tap. I love John Calvin. He says it like this. He says, when God, therefore, wishes to lead us to repentance, he is compelled to repeat his blows continually. I think this is a word for some people in this room. God is coming after you. And it feels like if there is a God, boy, he doesn't seem like he's a very good God because things don't feel like they're going very well in my life. And and what I want to suggest to you is that what God is doing is trying to alert you and wake you up to the fact that you are running from him. He's trying to draw you back to him. Last week I talked about when I broke my thumb playing baseball and, and it was being reset. And by the squirming in the room, I just figured you'd love another story about me breaking something. It was ninth grade. I was wrestling with my brother, my older brother. Um, this is a cautionary tale for the youth in our church. Don't wrestle. Um, we're wrestling. I'm in the, on the ground, jump up. My brother grabs me from behind, and he puts his arms around me, and we began to fall back, and my leg went backwards, and we both came backwards on the back of my calf, and there was a snap. Exactly. It's, it sounded, no lie, like a tree limb snapping. My brother goes, ah, and he throws me off him. Thanks, Brian. And he throws me off, and I look down, and my leg is twisted. It was what's called a spiral break. It's when your bone rotates, and it, it just, it broke in like multiple spots. I mean, it was just shattered. My stepdad heard the sound, and he comes running down the hallway, and I'm on the ground, 
swearing and crying and, and, and uh, trying not to move at all. He's like, Rob, Rob, you got to stay with him. Don't, you, you're going into shock. You can't pass out. I'm like, leave me alone. I want to pass out. And eventually they call the paramedics. The paramedics come in. And I remember this, this paramedic, he gets down next to me and he says, we got, we're going to move you. But to move you, we have to stabilize your leg. And this is going to hurt. Are you excited? You ready? I wish you had some pictures. I wish you had video. This is like, here's the thing is, if that happened today, my brother would have done it and then had his phone recording me. <laughs> Our world is so corrupt. All right, so they grab it, they grab my leg, and they just begin to kind of twist a few things just to try to get it to line up just enough to get this, this, this inflatable sack over it so they could fill it up and stabilize. And I'd like to tell you that after that happened, it was like, oh. It was not like that, but it was like, okay, I could at least move. You might feel like God's coming really hard after you, but he's actually coming really hard for you. And I would suggest to you that everyone in this room that's a follower of Christ, that's come to be saved by his sovereign kindness, it might have felt really firm, but it wasn't to hurt you. It wasn't to hurt them but it was to claim them and to get them like Nebuchadnezzar to come to their senses. As we get into chapter 5, we're going to see a different type of story. Chapter 4, this world leading, this this world power led by Nebuchadnezzar, he is is humbled to the point of bowing his knees to the Most High God. Chapter 5, there's another leader. This is uh, Belshazzar. It's not um, in the text. If you read through all of chapter 5, which we won't do, but if you go to chapter 5, you'll see it talks about Nebuchadnezzar's father. It's not really his father. That was a term that was used as part of his lineage, but it's not his direct father. But here's what we see in this text. Belshazzar is making a, he's, he, he's making a huge party, and he's inviting all of his friends, and they're, they're drinking. So we'll pick that up in chapter 5, verse 1. King Belshazzar made a great feast for a thousand of the lords and drank wine in front of the thousands. Belshazzar, when he tasted the wine, commanded that the vessels of gold and silver that Nebuchadnezzar, his father, had taken out of the temple in Jerusalem be brought, that the king and his lords, his wives and his concubines might drink from them. Then they brought in the golden vessels that they had been taken out of the temple, the house of God in Jerusalem, and the king and his lords, his wives, his concubines, they drank from them. They drank wine and praised the gods of gold and silver and bronze and iron and wood and stone. Immediately, the fingers of a human hand appeared and wrote on the plaster of the wall of the king's palace opposite the lampstand, and the king saw the hand as it wrote. So they're, they're having this party, and the king says, I want you to bring the vessels that were taken out of Jerusalem, out of the temple of God, that are used to, to worship God, I want you to bring them so we can, we can drink out of them. It's, it's like playing beer pong in the communion chalice. Nebuchadnezzar is saying, I don't care about this guy. I don't know who he is. He is insignificant to me. But God will not be mocked. And a hand appears. And it writes, many, many, tickle, parson. We'll get to what that means here in a second. Alistair Begg, in his book, Brave by Faith, I love how he, he applies this. He says, our culture works very hard to celebrate its success to pronounce its autonomy from its creator God, to declare that it has no need of the God of the Bible and his ways anymore. Most of the time, the affluent West is having a party and using all the gifts God has showered upon us to ignore him or mock his commands, not realizing there is a God who made them and gives them their gifts and indeed their breath. 
Daniel 5 is like the ultimate picture of, of folly. Belshazzar knew the story. He knew about Nebuchadnezzar. If you go in the middle part of chapter 5, it says Daniel's coming in. He's talking to the king because he sees these, these words written. And, and, and the queen finally says, hey, and he's so frightened and he's so scared. It actually says what in verse, in verse uh, 6 it says, or immediately in verse 6 it says, then the king's color changed. He sees his finger come and this is written and his thoughts alarmed him and his limbs gave way and his knees knocked together. Literally that phrase means he lost control of his bowel movement. He is so freaked out. And he wants to know, what do these words mean? And so there's a queen that says, oh, there's someone named Daniel, because this happened so many years after Nebuchadnezzar. says, there's this guy named Daniel. He can tell the king. So they bring Daniel, and Daniel comes in and says, oh, Belshazzar, what a fool you are. You've heard what happened to Nebuchadnezzar, how God was able to humble him. And you're sitting there mocking him. Verse 18 and following, O king, the most high God gave Nebuchadnezzar your father kingship and greatness and glory and majesty. And because of the greatness that he gave him, all people's languages and languages trembled and feared before him. Whom he would, he killed. And whom he would, he kept alive. Whom he would, he raised up. And whom he would, he humbled. But when his heart was lifted up and his spirit was hardened so that he dealt proudly, he was brought down from his kingly throne and his glory was taken from him. He was driven from among the children of mankind. His mind was like the mind of a beast, and his dwelling was with the wild donkeys. He was for grass like an ox. And his body was wet with the dew of heaven until he knew, until until he knew that the Most High God rules the kingdom of mankind and sets it over whom he will. And you, his son, Belshazzar, verse 22, you have not humbled your heart, though you knew all this, but you have lifted up yourself against the Lord of heaven and the vessel of his house have been brought in before you, and you and your lords, your wives, your concubines have drunk wine from them. And you've praised the gods of silver and gold, of bronze, iron, wood, and stone, which do not see or hear or know, but the God in whose hand is your breath, and whose are all your ways you have not honored. There's a scene in the movie Titanic where they're sailing across the Atlantic and this boat that when it was built, they said, this can never sink. It's the unsinkable vessel that is so mighty and strong. It is impervious to anything that might get thrown at it. And then midway through the movie and midway through the story in the North Atlantic, they come across an iceberg. They slam into it. And there's a scene where on the top deck, some of the ice, it, it, it breaks off and it ends up on, on the, the, the deck of the ship and, and people begin to play soccer with it. They're kind of kicking around and, and they're laughing. They bring a band out and they set up the chairs, begin to play music. And the whole time, in the belly of the ship, it is just filling with water. But nobody knows it. Nobody realizes Nobody cares because it's the unseekable ship. Nothing bad will happen. And it's just stunning because the whole time there's these lifeboats that are all lashed up, that aren't being lowered into the water, that aren't being prepared for people to actually be delivered. Daniel 5 is the ultimate picture of folly. To live as if God doesn't exist, to live as if your breath is not in his hands, to live mocking him and ignoring him. We'll come back to that. What do we do with this? There's a lot we could do with this sovereignty of God. 
But as we think about his sovereignty to to save one king, and we'll see at the very end of Daniel 5 to to stop one king, what do we do with this? Let me give you a couple handles. Because God is not small, we can speak up, and then we can sit back. Let me apply this to salvation and this word evangelism. In in Daniel chapter 4, God is a central figure for sure. He's the main actor. He's the one that's working. But there's also another figure that shows up in Daniel 4 that's also used by God to bring about Nebuchadnezzar's kind of humbling healing. Um, And it's Daniel. God sent the dream, but then God sent Daniel to the king to interpret the dream. And what Daniel was doing was, in effect, he was evangelizing the king. He's saying, oh, king, you are under the judgment of God. But there is a way out. Turn from your foolishness and turn to God. Recognize the Most High God. What I want to do is uh, give you a, uh, some encouragement because when we talk about speaking up, I don't know about you, but evangelism is, is hard and awkward and difficult. Like just, just in the midst of a culture that seems indifferent to talk to our neighbors or talk to our family members or talk to our classmates, like to, to speak up, it can be hard. I love this, this line by, or this quote by Rico Tice in his book, Honest Evangelism. He says, the problem with actually doing evangelism is that it just doesn't work. You're never successful. People don't become Christians. The other problem is that you might get it wrong. You're not good enough at it. And then Mr. Hallmark, Rico Tice here says this. He says, if you feel like that, you're right. Your evangelism never will make, it will never make someone come to faith in Christ. And your evangelism will never be good enough to win someone. But here's the thing. It doesn't have to be. That's not your job. When it comes to witnessing or or speaking up, the most liberating truth is to realize what is our job and what God's job is. Alistair Begg, who who quotes that in his book, he goes on and says, so what is our job? It's this, to speak up. Just to speak up. It's what Daniel did for the king. It's what somebody did for you if you're here and you're a Christian. Someone spoke up. And it's the privilege that we get in a world that needs him to speak up. And we have the best thing to speak up about. We have the story of a God who's so strong and so great and so mighty and so holy and yet so gracious he would come after someone as arrogant as Nebuchadnezzar or someone as arrogant as me as arrogant as you. See, we have the story of a God, the, the news that we get to speak up about is a God who doesn't say, you need to climb to me, you need to attain to me, you need to amass your trophies and your resume to, to be welcomed into my kingdom. See, we have the story of a God in his kindness and his grace look down at a humanity that was partying on the top of the Titanic when it was about to sink, and he sent his son Christ to come and live the life that we were meant to live and then die a death on a cross that we deserved, and yet he took the place of everyone that, 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 that merited the judgment of God so that they might receive the mercy of God and the welcome of Christ that they might be washed of all of their stupidity and arrogance and rebellion and injustice and he might welcome you in not merely as forgiven but as sons and daughters of the most high God. We just got to speak up. We just got to speak up. And then we get to sit back. Rico Tice goes on in his book, Honest Evangelist, says, you communicate the message, 
and then you pray that he would do the miracle. I love that. One of the things we learned from Daniel 4 is this, God is not small. Again, Rico Tyson says, says, think of the person you know who seems least likely ever to come to Christ in faith. I'm sure like all of you, I have those people in my head. Least likely ever. And then he goes on, he says this, then think of the power that created light for the first time. Oh, that's so good. God just said, let there be light, and there was. His unrivaled, irresistible strength. 2 Corinthians 4, 1 through 5, this is, I think, what Rico Tice is pulling from in that quote, says this, therefore, having this ministry by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart. But we have renounced disgraceful and underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word. But by an open statement of the truth, we commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to come to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ who is the image of God. He says we're just going to speak up. If people don't see it, it's because the evil one has blinded their, their minds from seeing it. But then listen to verse 5. It says this, for what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ is Lord. With ourselves as your servant for Jesus' sake, for God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. I know that we think, oh, some people are so far and so hardened to God, and they'll never come to faith. Every single person sitting in this room that came to faith is a miracle of God. None of us were predisposed to it. None of us. But the one who said, let light shine out of darkness, at some point he just removed the blindness because he's sovereign to save. God is not small. What do we do with um, Daniel 5 and God is sovereign to stop? We do the same thing. We speak up and then we sit back. Last week after the services, I was standing outside the doors. I was visiting with, with somebody and we were just talking and and, and last week, it was, some of the sermon was just like, a lot of us are really angry, and, and we're feeling pretty raw, and we feel like these exposed nerves, and it's just tough to like, just kind of like seek the good of everyone, because there's some really difficult people to want to love, and, and we're frustrated and angry, and this person said, yeah, I think some of why we're so angry is that things feel so out of our control, and we feel like we have no voice. And it kind of hit me in the conversation, I was like, oh, we are for sure out of control, but we do have a voice. There's a different type of speaking up, and you might share the gospel, you might share about Christ with others, and they might come to faith, but one of the ways that we can speak up in, in a world of bullies, in a world of atrocities, is by speaking up, or we call it this, pray. We can pray. I love Carl Barth's line on prayer. He says, to clasp the hands in prayer is the beginning of an uprising against the present disorder of this world. That is a beast of a line. I need like Darth Vader to read it. Like, I mean, it's just like James Earl Jones, like just this resonant bass to clasp the hands in prayer. It's the beginning of an uprising against the present disorders of this world. And in Daniel 5, the king is mocking God. He's, he's abusing his power. What can we do? We can pray. We can pray. In Ukraine, 
People are suffering and afraid and fighting and running and worried. And military forces that none of us could stand against are raging. But we can pray. God is not small. The Pascals, they sent a prayer request to me. They said, could you ask the church to do this? Would you pray that the war would stop? Would you pray for Russian troops not enter Moldova? Would you pray for endurance for refugees, volunteers, and the host families? Would you pray for the children who are displaced and so aware of what's going on? And above all of it, would you pray that every warm bed, every cup of coffee, every bowl of soup in prayer would be a light in the darkness for people that they might see the grace of God in this terribleness? Oh, we don't have control, but we know the God who does. And we can speak up. And then we get to sit back. Then we get to sit back. At the end of chapter 5, here's what we read. Verse 30 and 31. That very night, Belshazzar the Chaldean king was killed. See, the, the finger that wrote, Mene, Mene, Tekel, Parson, it says, you have been weighed, you have been measured, you have been found wanting, and, and tonight your kingdom will be given to another. God sent judgment. And then God enacted it. That very night, Belshazzar the Chaldean king was killed, and Darius the Mede received the kingdom, being about 62 years old. Let me give you a prayer that's about as close to an imprecatory prayer as I'll ever pray, or I ever do pray. Imprecatory prayers are these prayers in Psalm that it's like if you ever see the ones that just feel like, whoa, like God, don't blot out their sin or smash them against the rocks, or those are what are known as imprecatory prayers. About as close as I ever get is this, God, would you save the bully or would you stop him? God, would you save him or would you stop him? That's what we can pray. Because God is sovereign to save. And God is sovereign to stop. So my buddy leaned back against his chair and just sighed. He said, thank God for sovereignty. Thank God indeed. Let's pray. Father, would you save? We ask that. If you're not going to save, would you stop? Would you stay the hands of those that are enacting violence? God, would you strengthen the hands of those that are bringing healing? Father, we want to thank you that if, if we're here and we have faith in you, it is because of your sovereign kindness, because of your great grace, to take hearts of stone and make them flesh, to let light shine in darkness and wake us up to your glory and your greatness and your goodness, all because of your grace. Father, there are so many needs in this world that are so much greater than our shoulders can carry, but not yours. Just the span of your hand can stretch from one end of the universe to the other. Re revive us with the godness of who you are. Help us to cast away small thoughts of you. You are altogether mighty. Rightfully, you are the most high God. As John Bunyan said, that, that oh, that a great God would also be a good God brings us comfort. Because you see 
and you care, then you can do something about it. Let us go into the rest of this Sunday and the rest of this week with that comfort. In Jesus' name.